Good morning. Uh, before the message, I wanted to share just a couple quick things. First of all, um, if somebody left a watch, I think in the ladies' room this morning, yeah, I have it. So see me after the service. Um, also, uh, just a quick announcement from Pastor Patty. Um, you'll note that we'll be having communion this morning after the message. Um, our Creation Kids curriculum this summer is called Good to Know, Good to Grow. It was written by our own Lois Saylor, and it focuses on some Christian basics. Last week, the children covered baptism, and this morning, their lesson is on communion. We didn't plan that they would be learning about communion on the same Sunday that we would be sharing communion together, but we're really excited that it worked out that way. So at the close of the message, um, parents, I just wanted to tell you that um, we'll be sharing in a song of response. During that song, the children will be coming back to the sanctuary uh, to sit with whomever they came with, so you can be watching for them um, during that time. Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning for your word, for the way that your spirit uses it in our hearts and in our lives. We pray that you would um, help us this morning to, to hear from you and to follow you and obey you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Just a week or so ago, on Thursday evening, May 31st, 14-year-old boy, Karthik Namani, won the 91st annual Scripps Spelling Bee. Josh, can you show his picture? There he is. The next morning, perhaps you watched the news shows like I did, they shared the news and clips of his win. The broadcasters that I saw that morning were all surprised that it seemed so easy for this young person to correctly spell the word that gave him the championship, koinonia. Perhaps like me, you heard the various news show hosts bantering about the word, what it means, some even working hard, struggling to pronounce it. For many of us, however, Koinonia is a very familiar word. I imagine that many Christians throughout the world would have found it simple to win the last round of the spelling bee this year, though I doubt that many of us would have made it to the last round <laughs> through those harder words that it took to get there. At least I don't think I would have made it. Koinonia is a Greek word that appears in New Testament passages 19 times. In these passages, it's translated to mean fellowship, association, community, communion, participation, sharing, and contribution. Acts 2.42 is the first verse which includes this word, koinonia, and it's likely also the first that comes to mind for most. They, the early church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, koinonia to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Fellowship is the most frequent word for koinonia in modern translations, occurring 12 of these 19 times that it appears. In Romans 15, 26, the word is used for a contribution from Greek churches to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 has familiar words upon which our communion response that we use here at our church is based. The verse in Corinthians says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? 
Is not the bread which we break a sharing, a koinonia in the body of Christ? The word koinonia also appears in Hebrews 13. And this morning we'll be turning there together. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 1 to 3 and verses 15 to 16. And I forgot to tell you, Josh, so you probably don't have them. So you'll just have to listen to me while I read. So sorry about that. Hebrews 13, 1 to 3, says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. And then verses 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. While the first verses of the chapter certainly describe koinonia, Verse 16 actually includes the word koinonia, and do not forget to do good and to share koinonia with others, for with, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Young's literal translation of verse 16 says, and of doing good and of fellowship, be not forgetful, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And the message says it this way, Make sure you don't take things for granted and go slack in working for the common good. Share what you have with others. God takes particular pleasure in acts of worship, a different kind of sacrifice that takes place in kitchen and workplace and on the streets. In Acts chapter 11, verses 25 to 30, we learn that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The word Christian means little Christs or of Christ, as in servants of Christ. Why would the observers of these early Jewish and Gentile believers associate them with Jesus? Could it have been their sacrificial giving, their care for the needs of others, their love shown in such a tangible way? The church at Antioch was living out koinonia. And all of us today who live under the banner of Christian are to live out koinonia. Last Sunday, Pastor Hank preached a powerful message on living and loving like Jesus. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to be sure to go to the church's website and listen to it. Verse 1 of Hebrews 13 is certainly 
in keeping with last week's theme of living and loving like Jesus. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, the scripture says. The Greek word for love here is Philadelphia, from the roots for phileo for love and adelphos for brother. The same word was used four other times in the New Testament. In Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly and sisterly love. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. <clears throat> 1 Peter 1.22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. In 2 Peter 1.7, about things that we're to be adding to our faith and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Let brotherly and sisterly love continue. The Greek word for continue is meneto, which comes from monien, which means to remain. The word from which we get our word monument. Let brotherly and sisterly love stand like a monument, unmovable and uneroded by the weather of history, by storms of disagreement, by winds of racial misunderstanding, by floods of sinful attitudes and actions. Keep on loving one another. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The writer of Hebrew then moves from our relationships within the body as brothers and sisters to how we relate to those who are unknown to us. Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Here, the writer of Hebrews is most likely referring to Abraham, who welcomed three visitors, as we read in Genesis 18, getting water for them to wash their feet and baking bread and preparing a meal for them to have something to eat and be refreshed. Two of the visitors turned out to be angels. Sojourners published an article on true biblical hospitality. Excuse me. The article said, God's desire that we show others hospitality is a common theme in scripture. In the Old Testament, showing hospitality was a cultural norm. The New Testament frequently expresses its central importance as well. However, what does it actually mean to show hospitality? This is where things really get interesting. In English, we typically understand hospitality as a willingness to host, feed, and entertain a guest, something most of us do, and especially with our personal friends. However, what if the biblical term, the article says, has a much deeper and more difficult meaning? This is the problem we run into when we read the Bible in English and assume we understand what it's saying. Often we don't understand it fully. Trying to translate between languages is tricky like that, and the concept of hospitality is a prime example of what is missed between one language and another. Based on our English definition, most everyone would consider themselves hospitable, but are we really? In light of these two words, the article goes on, being combined, phileo and xenius, 
hospitality as commonly understood isn't exactly the best way to express the biblical truth. Instead of simply entertaining guests, the word becomes one who loves strangers, immigrants, like you would your own brother or sister. One who loves strangers and immigrants like you would your own brother or sister. That's a big difference and completely changes the way we see this term as it's used in scripture. The word appears over and over again throughout the New Testament, hospitality, which insists that one of the hallmarks of a Jesus follower is a radical love for strangers and immigrants, the same way we would love our own brothers and sisters. Our church has certainly made great strides in loving immigrants and strangers in the last decade. Each week, for instance, the many teachers for our English as a Second Language class lovingly interact with people from many different nations and cultures and languages and faith practices. And of course, our food pantry ministry and the Mission of Mercy medical and dental clinic ministry, which we host here in our building, are helping and loving strangers and immigrants along with many others in Jesus' name. Many among us are building friendships with people who moved here from places around the globe. Others among us are building friendships with people in our neighborhoods or workplaces or schools, people who once were strangers, people whom Jesus is calling us to love. Is there more that Jesus is calling us to do in this regard? Is there something Jesus is calling you to do? Someone whom you could reach out to in love? I recently read um, a piece that a Messiah College student wrote on the life of Harriet Bixler. Many of you know Harriet. She's a longtime member of Grantham Church, and she's the editor of Shalom, a, a journal for the practice of reconciliation, which is a quarterly publication of the Brethren in Christ Church. The piece that the student wrote spanned Harriet's childhood years in Zimbabwe and Zambia as the daughter of Brethren in Christ missionaries. It spanned her years as a Messiah College student and then her working years. I found it interesting that the student researched and shared some of Harriet's early writings. Harriet writes all the time the editorial for Shalom. She's a wonderful writer. Um, the student uh, found an article that she wrote in 1967 on the October 12th issue at the Messiah College Ivy Russell's which I'm assuming was the school's newsletter. People are nodding, yes? Um, Harriet shared in that three guidelines for anyone to follow in order to reach out and be friendly to others. She said, first, think of the other person. They may need a friend. Second, act natural. Don't overdo it. And third, remember, and then she quotes, the only way to be a friend is to be one. And that's quoting R.W. Emerson. These three guidelines, whether we're extroverts or introverts, would be helpful to us today as we put into practice these words from Hebrews 13:2. Do not forget to entertain, host, love strangers. Think of the other person. They may need a friend. Act natural, don't overdo it. And remember, the only way to be a friend is to be one. 
Then in verse 3 of Hebrews 13, it's not just brothers and sisters and the stranger that we're called to love. We're also called to remember those who are in prison in order to aid them with ministering love as if you were in prison with them. And we're called to remember those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering their mistreatment. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we are all part of the body. And verse 26 reminds us that if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. All over our world today, brothers and sisters in Christ are imprisoned for their faith, just as believers from the early church once were. All over our world today, members of the body of Christ are being mistreated and are suffering. Koinonia is translated as sharing. How can we share with those we cannot see or speak with? In what ways could we contribute to their care? Voice of the Martyrs is one ministry focusing on those who are imprisoned and those who are mistreated for their faith. They provide a prayer calendar that we can use to pray, and you can get it for them, I think, for a dollar, a whole dollar. They have a website. You might want to jot this down. It's a simple web address, icommittopray.com, all one word, icommittopray.com. Or they have an app that you can have on your phone. And each day, it brings up one prayer request for one person or group of people who are imprisoned or mistreated. And after you pray, you can press a little button that says, I prayed. Today, 256 people have prayed for the request that's shared there today. Many of us have unbelievable technology at our disposal, which we use in all kinds of ways, from banking to playing games to email to phone calls to research to Bible reading to keeping our calendar to photography. All this in our pockets. Not you, Pastor Woody. Not you. <laughs> can the list of things we can do please include obeying God by remembering regularly to pray for those who are imprisoned and those who are mistreated and those who need us to lift them up in prayer? Gracia Burnham and her husband Martin were missionaries who served <clears throat> for 17 years in the Philippines. They were taken captive by a band of militant Muslims and they were kept in captivity in the jungle for a year. Gracia Burnham shared their story here at our Mission Sunday just a few years ago. After a year of captivity, Gracia was rescued, but Martin was killed in the gun battle that led to her freedom. Once she was back in the U.S., after some moments of reconnecting with her family, she faced the media, and this is what she shared. <coughs> she said, good afternoon. It's good to be home. I want everyone to know that I am fine. Several minutes ago, I was reunited with my children and my family, and I think this must be one of the happiest moments of my whole life. We want to thank each and every one of you for every time you remembered us in prayer. We needed every single prayer during our ordeal in the jungle. We know there were countless of you who don't even know us 
who prayed and offered support, and we thank you. What a powerful firsthand testimony of the sustaining powers of our prayers for those who are imprisoned and mistreated. Remember them as if you were with them, God says. Remember them as if you were with them. And then moving to verses 15 and 16 of this chapter. Lloyd Ogilvie describes our praise using the image of magma rising in the heart of a volcano, which if you watch the news at all recently, I'm sure you've seen the images of magma rising. He wrote, in verse 15, the author of Hebrews touches on one of the most powerful dynamics of the Christian life, praise. When discouragement tethers our feet to the stakes, when fatigue numbs our spirit, when relentless circumstance hounds us moment by moment and day by day, the mature disciple discovers that praise both produces and releases energy. If only we could understand this, we would not wallow in the mire of self-pity and whine our way through the dark valleys, whimpering pathetically like spoiled children. By his power and grace, let us continually, through all circumstance and through all time, bring forward the sacrifice of praise and offer it upon the altar of our hearts. Praise will rise like a sweet incense before God. It is the praise of our lips rising like magma in the heart of a volcano that cannot be restrained in erupting to his name. Then Ogilvy continues lest we make the mistake of thinking that such verbal and worshipful praise is the completion of our witness, our exhorter quickly reminds us that worship must not be an excuse to forget good works and to share. Isaiah so clearly coupled worship and justice in the first chapter of Isaiah, pointing out that justice and righteousness are also sacrifices which are pleasing to God and demanded by him. They can never be the reason for our salvation. It's not by works, but they are the proof of it. Verse 16, and do not forget to do good and to share koinonia with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Ron Sider, in his book, Living Like Jesus, described koinonia this way. He said the early church was not talking about some fuzzy, abstract, invisible unity. Being one in Christ meant mutual accountability and responsibility for each other's spiritual growth. It also meant sweeping economic sharing. Paul considered this economic fellowship so important that he spent years organizing an intercontinental offering. Greek-speaking European believers shared sacrificially with poor Aramaic-speaking Asians in Jerusalem. Paul considered that economic sharing to be a visible demonstration of the unity of Christ's one worldwide multiracial body. In this sense, the New Testament is simply the continuation of a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament as well, that central to God's plan of salvation is a new, redeemed people living very differently from the world. And one striking mark of their difference is astonishing economic sharing among God's people. It can be our joy today as followers of Christ 
who gave himself sacrificially, also to give sacrificially in sharing our resources with others, whether with those close by in our own communities or in those in other parts of the world. I confess I have Africa on my heart these days as I'm gonna be returning to visit my friends from the Brethren in Christ Church in Zimbabwe in August. I'll be attending their general conference gathering at Wanezi Mission, and hopefully I'll be visiting the No-No Mission, seeing firsthand this construction going on for the medical clinic that many of you contributed toward, and meeting the brothers and sisters there. So a picture from Zimbabwe came immediately to mind when I thought of this intercontinental offering organized by Paul, the carrying of funds from one part of the body to another, and the joy within the body of Christ when we experience koinonia, fellowship and sharing. When I went to Zimbabwe in 2016, before I left, someone from our church came to me and asked if I would carry a gift from her to the church there. Her request was simple, that the church would use the gift to meet a need. She gave me an envelope with some cash in it, $200. Zimbabwe's economic situation is dire. Unemployment is very high, especially if you don't count the subsistence farming that many people do in order to survive. Needs are great. I honestly didn't know what to do with this $200 gift. Who should I give it to? So I asked one of my friends who is a deacon at their church if the deacons would be able to help someone with this money. She said yes, and I passed on to her the money to be used by her church. And I received a note from my friend a few weeks after I had returned home. She sent me this photo. Josh, you can put up the second photo. I don't know if you can see that, but that's a stack of chairs. And her note said, with the $200 deacon's gift, I bought 25 chairs for a new church, a church planting, where they were worshiping seated on the ground. God bless you the note said. My church was so grateful and thanked you so much. God bless. For the last two years, there's been a small Brethren in Christ congregation in Zimbabwe who've been sitting on chairs when they gather for worship, chairs provided by the sacrificial gift of a sister from our church. Praise God. I wonder when they sit on them if they're thinking about koinonia, fellowship, community, sharing. Following Christ is not some vague, abstract idea, some lofty philosophical concept. Following Christ means living like Jesus. If the New Testament is true, then Jesus longs for us to love our neighbors the way he did, daily, persistently, practically, Jesus modeled servanthood, self-sacrifice, and special concern for the poor and neglected. And he also cared for people's spiritual needs. This is koinonia, and to this we are called. As Bart comes to lead us in a song of response, let's prepare our hearts this morning for communion. 
thanking Jesus again for his love, for his sacrifice, thanking him for the fellowship that we have within the church, the church here and the church worldwide, thanking him for koinonia and for the privilege of sharing. Let's pray. Thank you.